Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 27th, 2023. Judging from the headlines, the world remains in chaos for the Financial Times headlines about the environmental crisis, Trump, of course, uh, the valuation of the economic markets, which now seem out of whack. The Wall Street Journal follows with this crisis of labor in the United States, crisis of U.S.-China relations focused on TikTok and the New York Times, of course, which are perhaps more than any other media company specialists in covering this bizarre crisis, uh, leads not for the first or the last time about Donald Trump as the symbol of this crisis, as a wannabe autocrat, a man undermining democracy. For some people, this crisis is what the um, the Columbia University economist who's been on the show, Adam Tooze, calls a polycrisis. Um, Tooze's notion of a polycrisis was picked up by Davos. They led with it this year. Never very original, the Davos people borrowing from uh, borrowing from Tooze. But there's another way of thinking of it. Um, rather than polycrisis, we live in a world now of disorder. Uh, that's the title of a really interesting new podcast called, appropriately enough, Disorder, the podcast that orders the disorder. Um, and it's co-hosted by an old friend of mine, Jason Pack, who's been on the show before as an expert on Libya. Uh, Jason, congratulations. The, the podcast just launched earlier this month. We've covered it and we will continue to cover it on the show. You've had we, we're, we're working in parallel. We have a lot of similar guests. Um, what are your thoughts on defining this crisis? You call it disorder. Tuz calls it the polycrisis. What are we talking about here? Well, my concept is that we're living in a new historical era, the global enduring disorder, and that this new historical era comes after the post-Cold War period and has certain key features. One of the primary features is that major world powers are not coordinating in ways that they had previously. Another key feature is that there isn't an Anglo-American hegemon who's seeking to order things. And that many competing powers are not competing for spheres of influence, like in the old days, the Soviet Union or the French Empire or the Tsarist Empire competed for spheres of influence, but rather they're trying to disorder the globe. And I use this one kind of uh, test case to show you how much things have changed. In the Soviet period, no area in the world was unimportant enough that the Soviets didn't want to export a fully fledged economic and ideological order there. Whether it was Cuba or Central Africa, they wanted to export an order. Here's your Marx and your Lenin. This is how you should run your economy. Do it this way. These days, Putin doesn't care about ordering Ukraine or Armenia or Azerbaijan. He just promotes disorder on both sides. He doesn't necessarily want Trump to do certain policies. They back him merely to disorder America. And that shows you how, for example, a disordering power works and how different it is from previous historical eras. So what you're saying then, um, Jason, is disorder is the new order. Or maybe putting it the other way around, 
the new order is disorder. So there's nothing particularly odd about disorder. It's just the nature of the new system. Oh, I like that. Um, I may steal that line. Andrew. You can steal anything because I would steal everything from you. So, uh... <laughs> so obviously, order and disorder are all relative. And if you talk about it too much philosophically, it sounds like you're talking about nothing. Right. But I would argue that from 1815 to either 1991 or certainly maybe 2003, you had an Anglo-American hegemon. They wanted to set the terms of trade. There were times that the British Empire was a free trading empire. There was times it was a mercantile empire. And the terms of trade were set. And then when the U.S. is taking over, is the global leader, you know, we created ordering institutions when we won World War II. And those ordering institutions worked in some ways. They failed in others. But they tried to order the world. In the victory after the Cold War, we didn't create ordering institutions. There's no treaty that ends the Cold War other, other than really the Budapest memorandum mm. of 1994. And that was never enforced because it was supposed to protect Ukrainian sovereignty and make America, Britain and Russia defend Ukrainian territorial integrity. You know, how did that work? So we're in this new period, which due to ne neoliberal economics, the economics department kind of taking over uh, a lot of the foreign policy function. We don't have uh, an EU or US, which is trying to order the near abroad. And then we have the disordering actors, obviously China and Russia, but also uh, neo-populist democracies like Bolsonaro's Brazil, Orban's Hungary. And when they were in power, Boris Johnson's Britain and Trump's America, I see them as disorderers rather than providing an alternative order. And that that's the way that we kind of start looking at things in the podcast. But we delve into topics like climate change and Tax yeah, I mean, I want to get to the podcast. We'll, we'll yeah. deal with the, the podcast after the break. We can break it down a bit. But sure. I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to this idea of disorder as, as the new order. It sounds to me, I mean, I know, Jason, you, you have a PhD or distinguished scholar. It sounds to me as if, in an odd way, at least in your mind, the world is not working according to what the, the IR textbooks suggest it should. Is that fair? That's exactly it. And unfortunately, I don't have the PhD. Um, well, that's at Oxford and you, once at Cambridge. If you did I, have a PhD, you wouldn't be on the show. I was in a doctoral program, but then there was the Arab Spring and I, I, I went to work in Libya. And then I had a fight with my supervisor, you know, standard stuff. Um, maybe too practical for the PhD. But yes, I read the classical IR theory, the Richard Haas and the Eikenberry. And these guys try to model states as like individuals in classical pre-behavioral economics. States, according to IR theory, maximize their interests and therefore they make rational decisions. But I found myself in Washington running something called the US Libya Business Association, representing these small companies that no one has ever heard of. Motorola, Pepsi, ConocoPhillips. And I learned that they weren't making rational decisions to increase their bottom line. They were governed by what I call incumbent psychology. And they might try to block new entrants in a space and hold on to a monopoly rather than growing the market. They were happy having the WhatsApp number of the Libyan central bank governor rather than trying to have a Libyan economy that functioned better. And without being conspiratorial, I realized, oh, wow. 
these guys are not acting the way it says in the IR textbook that for right. But maybe that suggests that the IR textbook wasn't right. That was the American idealism about the world, the way in which uh, the world behaved. I, I'm curious, do you think for British and US, Western statesmen generally, if we could rewind the clock, which of course we can't, go back to 1990, 1989 or 1991 or even 2008, they could have done it differently. They could have come up with a, a systemic response to this change, a, a new international order, a new peace treaty, a new Berlin, or God forbid, Versailles. I mean, I do believe that. And that's a kind of core principle of my book, podcast, scholarship, and, 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 and advocacy. I work with the NATO Defense College because I believe that we can create international institutions that work that there can be a NATO-like institution for uh, illicit financial flows. There can be a NATO-like institution for climate change. And that could be seen as a globalist or, uh, you know, left-wing conspiratorial Soros kind of agenda. But I see it as a real opportunity. If we go back to the mistakes of the 1990s, it's the idea that the economics department took over. We didn't try to order the post-Soviet Russian economy. We just let American foreign consultants flood in there. And the McKinsey's and PwC's were thought to sort it out, but they helped create a crony privatization whereby Anatoly Khubayas, who was one of Yeltsin's prime ministers, did this loans for shares scheme. And the loans for shares scheme was a crony privatization of all the major Soviet state companies. Then when I was in Libya, and I was there in 2008 working for a consultancy, which has since gone bankrupt, I was aware that many of the same Russia hands were recycled into Qaddafi's Libya, and we did crony privatizations, essentially. And, you know, it had already failed in Russia by the time it was being repeated in Libya in 2008. So the neoliberalism of, oh, just privatize all of these post-statist economies, it's absurd looking back, but it was actually absurd as it was going on. And that the American and British governments didn't want to kind of create a rules-based order for globalized finance. It's, it's comical looking back. I don't really understand it other than that there was an idea that certain share prices yeah. could go up and commodities would be cheaper in the short term. But the amount of disorder that was created, it was uh, phenomenal. The, the interesting thing, whether it's cause or effect, and I'm sure it's a combination of the two, a cause and effect of this um, de deregulated, globalized economy. If, I think the interesting comparison, Jason, is comparing the 2020s with the 1970s, which was also a period of great disorder, supposed decay, undermining of the West, violence, economic chaos, stagflation, and so on and so forth. But what's the, the difference, it seems, is if the 70s was the beginning of the neoliberal order with Reagan and Thatcher and the 20s is the end. So uh, they're in some ways very similar, in some ways very different. Yes, I would argue that that was a similar, a, excuse me, a simpler time. If you go back to the notion of polycrisis, which you introduced, it's that the multiple crises interact with each other. Clearly, illicit financial flows and tax havens work together. Do you know what I mean? That the flows of money allow this 
bizarre, uh, inefficient use of resources and problems of the commons. And that in the 1970s, it was a simpler time where most economies were still primarily national and most financial flows were between democracies and between the West. And what happens now is that we have a lot of state capture and and monopolistic capture and entities like Google and Facebook, which are working with Saudi and the Emirates to help those countries spy on their own people and and all of that. I don't want to say hard on Jason. What are you saying here that Google and Facebook are working with the the Saudis to spy on their own people? Is this an official thing? I hadn't heard them. I spoke inelegantly there. Um, There are use of technological tools such as those produced by the big tech companies, which very much enable the Saudi and Emirati and Egyptian dictatorships. I mean, that's not... I mean, that, isn't that like rather like blaming Canon or Sony or uh, um, Kodak when states buy cameras for their secret agents to photograph uh, dissidents? Yeah, uh, uh, an inelegant metaphor, but we, we don't regulate the way Google and Facebook play out abroad in their interactions with these regimes. I mean, there was the whole scandal with the uh, genocide of the Rohingya in Burma, whereby Facebook as a platform essentially yeah. was used by the generals to produce, you know, to, to amplify hate speech and stuff. I'm, I'm using some, I'm referencing yeah, some other all, examples. In all fairness to Google, uh, that, that was a Facebook C- correct. Uh, correct. But it was a shameful, perhaps the most shameful episode in a in a in a in a narrative of shame within Facebook. Over it the was pretty shame. It was pretty shameful. And what I'm not is a libertarian. And I know that you have a lot of very interesting AI scholars on this show. And I don't know enough about those kind of things. But my impulse is for global regulation and global institutions. I'm a capitalist, and I want free markets to operate. But I don't think that we have a market in these goods internationally without international regulations. In other words, we have market capture. And clearly in the United States, where we see that Amazon is both the platform and the product in many instances, and it can choose who you know, is shown first, we have had a failure of regulation to set the, the terms of trade to have free and fair market competition in these new domains. And that's, a, that's an important feature of the enduring disorder. The difference relative to the concept of the poly crisis is that this is a historic period where all these things are interacting and that at the international level, we need new treaties and new institutions to govern them. I think that that- As we speak, Jason, the headlines also are about the, the antitrust and, and antitrust spotlight now being focused on Amazon. In historical terms, is this state attempt to break up these dominant multi-trillion dollar companies? Is is history repeating itself? Are we maybe not so much back in the 1970s, but in the 1940s or even the 1890s? Well, when it comes to antitrust, I think we're in the 1890s. Not since the uh, robber barons have we seen so much concentration of power in so few hands. And the 1890s is an apt 
uh, metaphor because it was new technologies, particularly oil extraction in Western Pennsylvania and the railroads that led to the consolidation of power by the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. And it is new technologies like the internet and social media that have led to this new consolidation. And of course, technology is 20 to 30 years ahead of the regulators. So those technologies were 1850s and 1860s technologies, and then they got regulated or there was a debate and a crisis about regulating them in the 1890s. So these technologies now are about 20 or 30 years old. The regulators are about 20 or 30 years behind. I don't always, think... regulators, that's, it's, it's rather like the Brazilian economy, uh, always behind. Okay, <laughs> so final question before the break. And to me, and it's, it's good talking to you because I, I think about these issues all the time and we're basically talking about them every day on this show. It seems the key question to me about the 2020s is, can the state rise to the challenge? I agree with that. And it's not only can the state rise to the challenge, but can we as a humanity and as species... Yeah, but you're now, now you're broadening the question. You're muddying the question. Can no, the can, state... I, can I connect them though, Andrew? It's because... There's going to need to be bottom-up and top-down processes simultaneously. It's not like magically the Quetzalcoatl Haderach or a smarter and more effective Obama is going to magically solve these problems. Right. People need to decide to make sacrifices and vote in a certain way and to see that you can't put America first or Italy first or Britain first. Oh, we need to work with our allies. And that's going to have to take the people to decide as well as very innovative leaders to implement. Right, and the interesting thing is on the one hand, we have the crisis, the delegitimization de de of the state, of institutions, but on the other hand, we don't have the rise of other institutions, which is exactly why we have Jason Pack on the show, who is the <laughs> co-host of a fascinating new podcast, Disorder. We can take a short break now, Jason, and then I want to come back and I want to talk a little bit more specifically about um, your new podcast, I want to thank my friends at Liberties, uh, Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics, who do a great job putting a lot of these ideas uh, down in traditional textual form. We're going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Jason Pack, the co-host of a wonderful new podcast called, appropriately enough, Disorder. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. So we are with Jason Pack, the co-host of, of an intriguing new podcast, Disorder, the podcast that orders the disorder. Jason, you're a consultant. You've written books about Libya. You were on the show talking about your Libya book last year. Why the podcast? What, what, why, why have you invested significant amount of time and resources in, in a podcast that you are uh, co-hosting um, with um, with uh, a woman with a fascinating name, Alexandra Hall Hall. So good they named her twice. <laughs> well said. Um, 
Yes, I sometimes ask myself that question. Why did I want to pivot my career away from Libya and towards podcasting? I think it has to do with some personal experiences. I referenced before being in D.C. and I was there in the Obama period, but then at the beginning of the Trump period. And I was just disillusioned. I didn't feel that I was helping to shape Western policy towards Libya or help businesses make money in a coherent way because there was just too much disorder. I wasn't able to have that impact and that State Department was as broken as the private sector. And I thought that being a commentator and seeing Libya as a microcosm gave me a lot of insights. And when I wrote my book in 2019, even though it wasn't published till 2021, I also looked at Ukraine, Syria, and Venezuela as also microcosms of the global enduring disorder. And that really got me thinking. It's like, well, there are so many microcosms with the same principles. You know what? We should look at cyberspace. We should look at um, the psychology of diplomacy, problems of the commons, game theory. And I don't have the skill set to do all of that. Oh, what if I interviewed the leading experts on all these questions? And we tried to tease out what made all of these problem sets similar and how they're different now in the 2020s than they were in the 1980s. And the idea for the podcast was born. You launched uh, earlier this month in September. You've had three or four shows. What have you learned so far? What, from doing a podcast, what do you know now that you didn't know before you started this podcast? Wow. Well, one of the things I've learned is to really, really have tremendous admiration and respect for people like you who do live to tape podcasts. Ours is a narrative rather than a talking heads show. And that means that what you say can be edited and we don't do any live to tape, but the skill set of you, Al Zambone at Historically Thinking, uh, maybe a mutual friend, James Dorsey, who runs Turbulent World, to both have that charisma and lightness on your feet. Uh, that's not me. I'm thinking more conceptually, but I need multiple times to, to frame it properly. But I'm sure you were getting at the content. Yeah, I, less about the podcast. Yeah. I appreciate well, your nice compliment. But in, in terms of this global disorder. Sure. sure. Perhaps you might mention a couple of the early shows. I strongly I'm going suggest to. Our, our viewers and listeners uh, subscribe. It's an excellent show. Well, what have I learned? In episode one, we had Brian Class and Timothy Garton Ash, the Oxford historian, on. Yeah, I've had and Class on the show. I think you actually you introduced me to him. Exactly. We were at St. Anthony's together. And uh, my takeaways from them is that Timothy Garton Ash was watching it all unfold, dealing with Eastern Europe, where he had been a lot in the Soviet period, but then in the 1990s, writing about it as a historian, but also dealing with it as an advocate and seeing that liberty and freedom were being mis misunderstood, this whole idea of the economics department taking over rather than doing traditional Western capital L liberal politics. And Brian was really hitting at the way in which democracies are choosing the wrong leaders more now than previously. These dark triad traits, um, and that's Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and I think either greed or ambition, and how our democratic systems, when we're in crisis, people want to vote for strong men leaders to lead them in this crisis. And the worse things get, the more we choose the wrong leaders. You know, you only have a Mussolini or a Hitler 
because there was hyperinflation kind of thing. So that the worse things get, people's tendencies are to not share and to choose negative sum rather than positive sum uh, choices. And that's exactly the reverse of what we need, but it's a evolutionary thing. I kind of knew that intrinsically, but hearing Brian talk about it, totally fascinating. Um, I mean, Gart Nash is, is a great writer. I've, I've read all his books, especially the early stuff in, in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, how yeah, and- much of what, of, of, of Gart Nash's world, um, uh, the world of Poland and the rebellion against Jaruzelski and solidarity, how much is that relevant today? It seems archaic. It seems <laughs> history now, especially yeah, those, given what's happening in Poland. Those were similar, simpler times. We didn't get into any of those details. Disorder is a broad brushstroke affair. We don't, you know, have people talk about their new books and 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 delve into the details. We're painting a big picture. We have these, you know, leading thinkers tell their personal stories and how they see the world. And we hope that that helps the listener, you know, process events that he sees in his or her own life. Um, About Garden Ash in specific, I think that he rooted the sense that we need to believe in our own values, that we in the West need to say, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And we as the people want to regulate these domains and we want to have our values and we believe in them. Um, otherwise, our own house is going to be too disordered. How can we possibly order the world? And that was a, you know, a great segue to, for example, what was discussed in show two about cyberspace. Why is it that the Russians are so much better, as are the North Koreans and Iranians and Chinese, at using cyberspace to amplify their power? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we just don't have the confidence that we had in the Cold War to really be putting our narrative out there, or rather we don't have one narrative because we're so divided between Republicans and Democrats and Brexiteers and anti-Brexiteers. We're not promoting something into the world that can help us win the the large top table cultural struggles. Right, so the the cultural struggle when when Gart Nash was writing in the 70s and 80s was articulated, as you suggested, by American-backed media organizations like Voice of America, Today, the equivalent of Voice America are all these anonymous bots on social media, which are controlled and paid for in Beijing or or Moscow. What should the West be doing? It it can't reopen Voice of America. That's an archaic idea. Well, we have the Voice of America, but it's just not. Yeah, uh, but no one listens to it um, because they don't need to. It's, It's a very different world. Everyone has the Internet or a certain kind of Internet. Should the West be paying for bots like the Russians or the Chinese? Should they be orchestrating their own propaganda campaigns on social media? And as you said, what what would the propaganda, would it be for or against something? Well, we certainly need to get our own house in order. And part of the reason I made the podcast is I was fed up with my various think tank appointments. And, you know, when I'm reading the news, it's problems after problems, people telling you how things are wrong and no one proposing solution. These days, not even think tank research papers really have policy recommendations. So every podcast that we produce ends with the ordering the disorder segment. And I don't have all the answers. I ask these really smart people like Garton Ash and former FBI agent Asha Rangappa, how do you handle these questions? And then we let them try to order the disorder 
with the low hanging fruit. Uh, what are things that we can implement? And you've asked, I guess, my personal view, should we be doing uh, propaganda or active measures? I would say yes, but yes, only because the Russians and the Chinese are doing them. And I think that we need a offensive cyber capacity. So if we go back to the days just before the Ukraine war, say January 2022, Putin was massing his troops on the Ukrainian border and through Belarus. If we had made the lights go off in St. Petersburg for two hours, and then Biden said, hey, that was us. If you invade Ukraine, the lights are going off in St. Petersburg for three days. I don't think we'd be in this mess because Putin would have been facing potential domestic uprisings and, and it would have been horrible. But we don't do that kind of offensive cyber. The Russians and the Soviets are experts at what are called active measures. We had a good active measures uh, ability in the Cold War period, which we've lost, and we essentially don't believe in it enough now. And you might say, maybe we don't need that because we need to be the West and we need to stand for a rules-based order and we don't want to be offensive. We just need to defend. But we're not even defending very well. And on propaganda, we need leaders who can communicate better. Biden is obviously, I think, a good person, but he's not a great communicator. Yeah, and Bi Biden is a metaphor of radical, dramatic decline of, of having a president who not but only he is barely articulate, but he's ba barely alive. Um, I, I don't think that that's fair, but he doesn't inspire. We need a JFK type figure. Well, we need a JFK. That's it's all very well saying that, Jason, but even JFK wasn't JFK. Now we know him. Can you have a JFK in an age of social media of radical transparency? Okay, maybe I should have said a Churchillian style. Well, we've had Churchill on, we've had shows, a revisionist take on Churchill, an extreme racist. Uh, of course, and, and I said a Churchillian style orator, not a Churchill. We know that he was flawed in many ways, but we in the Western world are going to need to figure out new ways of doing politics, new ways of communicating with our own people, and new ways of working together.